Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates, taking another trip north this time on the road to the country we call counterculture. Why don't you come with us? You can sign up and get a ticket to ride at bureauoflostculture.com where you'll find all our journeys. You can get in touch, get our newsletter, and even put some fuel in our tank to propel our future wild endeavors. The late great archetypal psychologist, James Hillman, had an intriguing romantic notion that he described in his book, The Soul's Code. Taking his lead from Plato's description of the daemon, a guiding spirit that accompanies each new life as it's born, he suggested, that we each have a destiny, a calling as he described it, and that this calling reveals itself in glimpses in our childhood and youth, whether we notice and answer it or not. More on that later. Does it seem true to you or woo-woo to you? Certainly strikes a chord with me and struck a chord on reading Set the Boy Free, the autobiography of our guest today at the Bureau of Foss Culture. And chord is probably the right metaphor given what he spent his life doing. In reverse order, he's about to set off on tour with his band playing shows with Blondie. He's just released his latest solo record, Fever Dreams Parts 1-4. Before that, he worked with Billie Eilish on the Academy Award-winning theme for the Bond blockbuster No Time To Die. He's released a bunch of solo records and projects, worked with all sorts of other bands, including Modest Mouse, The Pretenders and the other. He had chart hits with Electronic, played hundreds of shows, and got up to all sorts of other stuff. Oh yeah, and he formed and co-piloted one of the best-loved and influential British indie bands of all time, The Smiths. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what made him, about the glimpses he had into his future. The road signs along the way, as he describes them. And along the way. We're going to talk about growing up in an Irish immigrant community, about the significance not only of books, records and clothes, but of bookshops, record shops and clothes shops in youth culture. Colin Wilson, Tony Wilson, Patty Smith, Mark E. Smith, songs, politics and of course the culture and counterculture of his hometown, Manchester. He's Johnny Marr. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture, Johnny. Hi, Stephen. Nice to be here. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Um, uh, Johnny, we're going to dive in. We're going to circle around the vast subject of Manchester and North and South and the counterculture in your life and times in it, right? But I wanted to start off by a little bit from your book, right? Because this seems to me to be one of the first signposts on the road as you uh, described them, to what was going to happen. So let me just read you this, okay? It was summer 1968. I was nearly five years old. And every day we would walk past Emily's corner shop and my mother would have to stop and wait while I stared up intently through the window at the little wooden guitar leaning on the shelf between the mops, buckets and brooms. My mother had got used to having to stop at Emily's and she and my father had wondered about their son being so taken with the toy guitar. It was always the same. We stand outside the shop while I gazed up until that morning when my mother took me inside and gave me the money for it to Emily, who took the guitar down from the shelf and handed it to me. And from then on, I can't remember a time when I didn't have a guitar. Was that it? Was that the moment? 
that was the moment my kind of identity started, if if you like, because um, it's never really wavered. It's it's quite unusual that I'll, I'm able that anyone I think is able to pinpoint um, the time when they found their future employment uh, before they were even six. I think also because I've been defined by it, I've been asked about when I started to play the guitar and why I started to play the guitar. And my family have always been able to pin it down to that moment. And I remember that moment. Can you picture it? Can you picture looking up into the shop window? Yeah. Uh, well, it was a very, very hot day. The kind of weather that Mancunians used to say, crack the flags, paving stones. For the weeks leading up to that, it seemed like, seemed like months, but it'd just be a couple of weeks when we walked past this little store. I was, I was just hoping it hadn't been sold. It's like, oh, that's mine, that's mine. <laughs> So the odd thing about it, I guess, was that uh, I didn't have any indications that of what a guitar was about. It wasn't like at that age, obviously, as a little kid, five, you, you know, you it was just, it was a toy, but it just used to call me really. There's there's something that I can't really explain about my attraction to that instrument uh, that goes beyond wanting to be famous and all of that kind of stuff. You know, maybe he's a little esoteric, maybe he's a bit mystical. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned James Hillman, the archetypal psychologist, and he wrote that book about 15 years ago now, um, The Soul's Code. He talks about this thing, but it was based on Plato's idea that, um, you know, we have a deum and a kind of guiding spirit which we come into the world with. But James Hillman talked about it as, rather than career, as as one's calling and that sort of in some way kind of mysteriously already exists. And then you get these, as you call them, signposts on the road. Well, it, it, interestingly enough, uh, I don't know whether you've seen the Ken Burns, Muhammad Ali documentary that's, that's just been released. Fascinating. You know, I've been a fan of Ali's film all my life, really. But his introduction to boxing was a similar thing in that, OK, he had his, he'd had his bike stolen. And he went to report to a policeman who was downstairs in a boxing gym. His recollection of it, as he immediately walked in the gym, the smell in there and the sound and the atmosphere, he knew what he wanted to do straight away. So it was beyond, I wanted to go and beat up the guy who stole my bike. It was his senses. I went into overload and he had this calling. And then if anyone was ever you know, destined to do what they were going to do, I suppose, it's Muhammad Ali. Ali but, right, yeah. So funny enough, I was aware when I was writing the book that um, these signposts crop up. I didn't plan it, but in terms of my life story, whether I had got the chance to write a book about my life or not, I am someone who is aware that I have had these moments that not only have been fortuitous, but that I was uh, quite aware of them as, as they were happening because some people can be dismissive of it. But then again, um, I know that Colin Wilson is a name that's cropped up on on. Mm your podcast a few times uh, you know when i've read about peak experience and um uh, richard books cosmic consciousness and things like that this is stuff that i can sort of testify that in my life there are those moments you know right. this, this is a significant moment i suppose in those in those moments one's got a choice but whether you're going to act on it or not which is it's not just that the moment, yeah. the moment happens and that's it you still got to choose in some way right which so we're going we're to come back to that because there are quite a few choices that you make along the way so you, you know you were born you know irish immigrant parents and you know your folks i think you said your folks they were they weren't musical themselves necessarily but music was a big part of their maybe still is a big part of their life right so you, you did grow up in a kind of musical environment really extremely musical because mm. um my family were part of the immigration to 
the the kind of labourers' immigration to Manchester. There's there's two huge significant swathes of immigration that come into Manchester. One is in the, the Industrial Revolution, of course, mm-hmm. um, which brought in not only lots of Irish but Eastern Europeans and West Indians. The second wave of the my family were part of, which was in the late fifties to build the roads and. Um, put up new housing and all of that. And I grew up with around these, a very young extended Irish family everywhere I looked was aunties and uncles who were really, you know, in their early twenties and their brothers and sisters. So my mother's from a family of 14, my dad's from a mm. family of five, mostly moved over on mass to this area of just outside of Manchester city center where the, the Apollo theater is. And um, we all live within streets of each other. So everyone was, my memory of that is people coming in and out of the house day and night. Mm. Um, and when I was off school, my aunties would be coming in and out during the day. And they were they were young 60s uh, women. There was uh, all of this musical activity because those young Irish, young adults who were starting families, they were all music freaks. Mm. They were, they brought over loads of records. They were into country music. A lot of up-tempo stuff. They brought over rock and roll with them, which almost was a bit like retro then, really, the Eddie Cochran's and the Everly Brothers. But I I watched this obsessive behaviour about records playing a 45, 15 times in a row, which is something that I do now with playlists, if it's something I like. Uh, That was one of my first memories. Uh, And the other thing was um, that uh, a lot of the records I was hearing, if it was Everly Brothers or... uh, uh, Eddie Cochran, they're built on really very obvious loud guitars. So I was copying all of that. Hmm. So yeah, I grew up around this very youthful, exuberant party culture, really, because there was a lot of uh, socialising going on in the house any 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 night of the week. Because I mean, this was the sixties, but obviously you're just you're just a little kid. We t- we're going to yeah. talk about counterculture, but that doesn't really apply here, does it? Because it's a different. You know, when you're a kid, it's just culture, isn't it? Or it's just the world, right? So, what was Manchester yeah, like? I mean, what was what was your little person's view of it? I had a sort of awareness of or a, an attraction to people who looked a little different and maybe behaved a little different. The, one of the things about uh, the, my background, my parents just let me be independent. My playground, if you like, was the Man- Manchester City Centre when, right. in the evening when the shops were closed. Something that happened which was very significant for me. So there was a lot of uh, scooter boys and skinheads who used to hang around. And I used to watch these people. And again, you know, being maybe eight or nine, I was clocking things really that I probably, you know, was more... Th- stuff that you should be clocking at 14. But because my uncle was clocking mm. it and he was dressing this way, he was a few years older than me, I was sort of pulled along in his slipstream in a way, culturally. So there was a lot of these very good-looking working-class boys. Mm. One of them, for some reason, he, he was intrigued by by me and he, he called me over. He said to me, oh, okay, so see these? These are called parallels, okay? He's pointing to his trousers. And he's going, right, okay, and very important that they're the right length. And then he, he said his shoes were brogues. He's like, okay, these are called brogues. And he had striped laces. I always remember that. He went around red and black striped laces. Very important that you have the striped laces. You can, they don't come with them. Like, these are called royals. And then he took it, he had a crombie on and he took his coat off and he held it up. And it was amazing really that this sort of maybe 15 year old hmm. guy was, was explaining all this to a little kid. And he goes, okay, so this is a crombie. Right. And then he put me on the back of his bike and he goes, right, see the shirt. Okay. 
Uh, right. This is, uh, I think it was a Brutus shirt. And because right. I always remember the pleat down the back and then and the button down collars, uh, black Brutus. And um, anyway, he said to me, right, it's very, so you have to have the rose. He showed me his coat. You have to have the rose on the coat, right? Now, this was, this was like the tablets of stone for me. <laughs> uh, I couldn't believe it. And I was clocking his mates, you know, like they, they all had the clobber on and this really good looking teenage girl with him. And uh, anyway, off the road, and I pelted it in. To, my dad had just come in from work. And I was like, Dad, 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 I've, I've got to get a crumbie. I've got to get a crumbie. I've got to get a crumbie. It's got a rose on it. It's got a, a white rose. And my dad was like, whoa, whoa, that's a man's coat. What are you talking about? <laughs> he, he didn't even have the money for a crumbie. <laughs> yeah, right. I was going to have a, have a crumbie. I've got to have a crumbie. And I've got to have some royals. I've got to have some royals. What are royals? And, you know, he must have been amazed at what what was happening to his son yeah so you you just had like a super fast sartorial education in style right i mean mod style yeah uh, and i think i know you had Stuart home on the podcast mm. a while back right yeah uh, so anyone who's interested in this side of street culture can listen to what Stuart home had to say about it um very very specific coding mm. in the way that those kids dressed and behave. I think it's 1970, 6970, because it was just before we moved. Uh, and that made a massive impression on me. Everyone on the street used to notice what everyone else was wearing. And of course, you know, I mean, there's been smarter people than me explain the reasons why working class people express themselves through clothes like that. I've come to think that working class kids' interest in clothes, I think, is their first experience of design. Hmm. It's, it's an artistic expression that you where you are not really aware that you are artistic or an artist, but you are noticing the difference in design. And in my case, I got obsessed with colours right? and what colours did and the way certain things were put together. Because in the very early 70s, you had, I think, again, Stuart Home talked about this stuff, you had things called football jumpers. That's right. And it was very important that in one week that you had the maroon and blue one. And then suddenly two weeks later, it would flip to the green and black one. And I've become obsessed with the green and black one. Genuinely not because of the trend or to keep up with people. I just love the combination of green and black. Or I love the combination of maroon and blue. So there was something else going on with me. That, that working class thing is really interesting. I mean, Barry Kane uh, was in. He Barry was the person who did something called Flexipop magazine in the 70s or maybe 80s, I think. And he was, he was born in North London. And he said what happened was is when he moved to a council flat he said for the first time you could have a full length mirror so you could check out your entire look uh, right <laughs> rather than just your head amazing you know like your uh, before that you just could see your head in the bathroom mirror you know now <laughs> the mirror was by the front door of course so on your way out you could get your look just spot on you know and that was a big important part of it and of course the detail which was what you're talking about there was absolutely crucial it was the detail that kind of communicated whether you really knew what you were you were wearing yeah yeah and, and also in my case again i suppose because i lived so close to the city center where all the student halls hmm. are yeah it's all halls of res residence and i started to notice the difference between two particular tribes in manchester uh, one, very long hair and long coats, even in the sweltering summer. They 
behaved and looked very different to me. And then the other side of teenage culture was these guys with short hair and tonic two-tone suits and all of that. You'd see the twisted wheel on people's scooters and some people would have the patches on when I go into town in the daytime. Or you'd see the um, Northern Soul patches. And th these symbols uh, and iconography hmm. started to intrigue me a little bit, really. Uh, over the years, obviously, I've, you know, you can imagine I've been asked why so much music's come out of Manchester. One of the main reasons was that by 1966, there were more clubs per capita in Manchester than anywhere else in Europe. I think it was oh, second huh. only to New York. And again, that comes back to the immigration. Immigrants had established their own uh, entertainment system. So in my case, it was the Irish clubs. Hmm. But but really, Manchester was very very famous for beat clubs. Right, Twisted Twisted Wheel being the most most famous. That opened in 1963, closed in 1971. Uh, it was opened. Spencer Davis Group opened it. Uh, I think Jimi Hendrix had played there a couple of times. But you know, people like Benny King was on there, and all the psychedelic bands were on there. So it was it was a really Manchester was right on the circuit for right the way from the the blues bands right the way to the early 70s soul bands you know that's quite a statistic then so more clubs than anywhere else apart from new york and of course there was like even there was nigerian clubs wasn't there there was like it wasn't just mm. you know there were there were these other sort of smaller ethnic groups who were also uh, doing their clubs so johnny we, we, there's guitars going on there's clothes going on and there was books for you right and this is another bit from your book it says, I'd go to the record shops and bookshops in Manchester City Centre every Saturday without fail. Most of the bookshops were shabby affairs with a shifty-looking proprietor who'd eye you suspiciously like you're after a sleazy paperback. Or he wanted you out if you didn't. I'd inspect the second-hand paperbacks by J.G. Bowler, William Burroughs, with titles like The Drowned World, The Wind From Nowhere, The Naked Lunch and Junkie, and wonder what it was all about. Uh, books were mass massively in the equation, but as a consequence of the more interesting record shops and a very significant part of what went into punk and then the culture I came out of, indie culture, were, were a bunch of bookshops. One was Paper Chase, another one was Grassroots. Mm. There was a very significant place called House on the Borderline. I would go into town either when I started to bunk off school or religiously on a Saturday. I'd go in all the regular record shops, of which there were loads, but we'd always make a beeline for these shops. And there was you, there was definitely an awareness of something going on, and again I was clocking older kids. There was either kind of very sleazy, quite sleazy loner guys who had nothing to do with music who were loitering around, loitering around these kind of pulpy, porny, kitschy uh, paperbacks. There was always some interesting boys, people like Steve Morris, the drummer in New Order, or Marky Smith from the Four, or Ian Curtis. He plays a very very, very significant uh, part in Manchester counterculture history for all the obvious reasons. But hmm. just being around these older kids, this was probably 75, 76. Bowie was the Lord. Bowie was God. Uh, we were all getting our messages from Bowie, um, from his interviews and from codes that he was leaving in, in his record. So, for example, the Gene Genie, you know, that was a little pun on Jean Genet. You that. wanted to know who Jean Genet was, you know. And then, of course, there was a undercurrent of gay culture in that. You know, I remember Paul Morley saying Bowie's like a, an advent calendar. Every little door you open, you go, oh, there's William Burroughs. Right. There's Kraftwerk. There's Germany. There's Berlin, all of this sort of stuff. This is the nascent 
kind of literary inspirations that went into the Manchester punk bands like Magazine and Buzzcocks and Enjoy Division. So you've got obviously Philip K. Dick and Burroughs and, and even Kafka and Herman Hesse as well. So I was probably 13, 14 then. It was the actual heyday of uh, of the cheap paperback. They were all 50p. Albums were £3.25, um, which was a fortune to me. And um, these paperbacks were 50p. And they were quite easy to steal these paperbacks. So if there was one that had a good, uh, had a cover that was intriguing, I would I would nick it. So that's how I kind of that's that was my introduction to Burroughs, really, like stealing these paperbacks. All that stuff's in the mix. I mean, you mentioned it then, the Sex Pistols show at the Free Trade Hall, and it's been described as the most important gig of the seventies. You know, friends of yours were there. Punk stuff was coming or was coming in. New bands were forming, and the bands that were inspired by that. This was the kind of counterculture of the mid seventies in Manchester, was it? That it was this melting pot of new stuff and quite old stuff because, of course, by then, Burroughs, really. I mean, Burroughs is still alive, of course, but, you know, I mean, the beats, uh, you know, he'd been going since the 50s, hasn't he, or in the 40s even. So it was all, it was quite old as well. So were you just soaking it up, you know, like a sponge? Well, I was like a sponge. What was fascinating about Manchester pre-punk, there wasn't really a parallel like um, in the capital, aside maybe from West 11, Portobello Road and Notting Hill. My existence was quite schizophrenic in a way because... Wanted to be a real scholar of music, of guitar music. Uh, by then, 14, 15, 75, you know, I was fairly streetwise. I found that town, the city centre, urban places, was just a real major source of inspiration for me, like looking at all the kids, joining other bands. So I was soaking all this up like a sponge, yeah. So some of the more interesting people that I was around, the older, older guys, uh, that I made it my business to try and study and what listen a record collection so pre-punk the interesting stuff that these people were listening to you had pink floyd you had dark side of the moon and you had all of that, that rock culture but beef out was very very big mm. john peel was very important and the music press was really really crucial there were a couple of underground magazines one was called grass eye and mole express they were modeling themselves on international times and friends in london so it was discussing lots of countercultural things i think with me there was a a little bit of a rites of passage going on. So I was eager to take drugs uh, and that's what seemed to be a gateway to making interesting music. I found myself, you know, at a couple of pubs where I'd get a quid worth of pot and a lot of other teenagers were like this. Without being too crass, you can't really talk about mid-70s counterculture without discussing drugs because it was totemic of everything that was going on. It was intrinsically part of the culture. You went to places and you could smell hash, or you try to buy someone, or there was amphetamines. And so that was going on. But where, because I was working class, I also liked disco. And that's very, and I had a sister who was very, very into disco and she was what became known as a Perry girl. So she thought that all of this student, B-farty, stonery <laughs> intellectual cerebral stuff was bollocks and she had a point <laughs> there's, a, there's a funny scene in your book where you say when, you, when your folks used to go out on a friday night hanging out with their own friends and and stuff and uh, as soon as they'd go on you guys would be listening to music and you'd be listening to b-fart and all that stuff in her in one room and she'd be listening to disco in the other one and she'd open the door and say having fun doesn't look like much fun uh, yeah. <laughs> she'd get you to listen to disco and that's what turned you on to like Nile rogers and stuff yeah well the, the you know because i was young so in the, mm. in my case you know i was soaking all of this stuff on up and i was fairly i guess precocious i had to be to 
to do what I needed to be. I was just right wherever there was musical bands I was going to be. No one was going to hand it to me. I had the obsession and the passion, but also a fair amount of desperation. Mm. You know, I was forming bands and mm. I thought, God, we're not going anywhere, but I was only 14. But for me, I was like, why aren't we in the NMA? Here is a sidebar about James Hillman's acorn theory. Plato and the Greeks called it a daemon, the Romans' genius, the Christians' guardian angel. For James Hillman, it was the guiding force in which each life is formed by a unique image, an image that calls it to a destiny, just as the mighty oak's destiny is written in the tiny acorn. Sooner or later, something seems to call us on a particular path. You might remember this something as a signal moment in childhood, when an urge out of nowhere, a fascination, a peculiar turn of events, strikes like an enunciation. This is what I must do. This is what I've got to have. This is who I am. If this isn't vivid or sure, the call may have been more like gentle pushings in the stream in which you drifted unknowingly to a particular spot on the bank. But looking back, you sense that a fate had a hand in it. Manolet, who became the most famous bullfighter in all of Spain, was a delicate and sickly child he was interested only in painting and reading. He stayed so much indoors and clung so tightly to his mother's apron strings that his sisters used to tease him. But it all changed when he attended his first bullfight. Were his mother's apron strings a metaphor? Was he already using her apron, her skirt, as a cape to hold in front of himself? Was he jeweled with a thousand pound black bowls with razor sharpened horns thundering towards him from his future. Amongst them is Lero, the one that gored him and killed him at the age of 30. Or consider this event, amateur night at the Harlem Opera House. A skinny, awkward 16-year-old goes fearfully on stage. She's announced to the crowd, the next contestant is a young lady. She's going to dance for us. Uh, hold, hold it, hold it. What's your problem, honey? Oh, correction, folks. She's changed her mind. She's going to sing. Ella Fitzgerald gave three encores and won the first prize, but she had meant to dance. Was it chance that changed her mind? Or might that moment have been an annunciation, calling Ella Fitzgerald to her particular fate? We are born with a character, it's given, a gift, as the old stories say, from the Guardians upon our birth. I wasn't too old to go to youth clubs. Youth clubs were still playing the, the banging glam rock. They'd be playing like Rebel Rebel and mm. whatever you know, T-Rex tracks were going, but they played a lot of disco and, and there was beautiful girls there mm. and hip switched on lads. So when the Smiths came out with, say, with our first hit singles, that's why I kind of looked the way I did because I was sort of going back really to the Perry Boys and Perry Girls of the youth clubs, kind of a little bit 60s-ish. So I was able to bring that into the aesthetic of the Smiths. Really, I was trying to morph myself into my sister and her friends, really. So for music, me and my mates, there was two sort of camps going on. There was the sort of more, slightly more middle-class, say, intellectual kind of interest that was being played out in the music press. And then there was a sort of street culture in town on the Saturday, in youth clubs on a Friday night. It was just really good fun all around. 
It's quite interesting this thing about class and counterculture, isn't it? Because you know it's been apparent interviewing people on this show that what's often thought about counterculture in London, you know, was a quite a middle class thing in the sixties. But as the seventies come and it moves more into street culture, youth culture, and of course the in the UK itself the whole social scene got darker, which is one of the things you know that punk came out of that. Right. Very important thing about the punk explosion was that there was already a group of older usually men not always though given you think of vivian westwood who had been countercultural throughout the 60s so you've got malcolm mclaren in the south vivian westwood bernie rhodes they were aware of situationism and they'd been to art school and they are intellectual and in a way they are ready to aid and abet a bunch of working class talented youngsters Exactly the same thing happened in Manchester. Early 70s, there's a huge student population. There's loads of places to play in Manchester. There's drug culture. But crucially, it was separated from the mainstream media. And it, you wouldn't bump into Charles Murray or you wouldn't bump into Ian MacDonald, people who were writing in the actual music press. So that gave you a sense of one step removed. And in a way, kind of a bit of a chip on your shoulder and slight mm. kind of an attitude that's quite healthy but there are still characters who are ready to aid and abet. Howard Devoto would be one who went on to be the singer of the original Buzzcocks and the magazine, of course. Very, very important. Pete Shelley, who was the writer in Buzzcocks. Richard Boone, who went on to manage Buzzcocks. Malcolm Garrett, who did the artwork for many bands. And then, in a way, Manchester's Malcolm McLaren figure is Tony Wilson. Right. And who is a little older than the bands he goes on to champion. Unlike McLaren, he actually starts a record company. He was on television every night. Grenard reports he was on the news programme. He was a really unique figure. So we're talking early days of punk now because back then television, millions of people watched it. There was only three channels. And he was the young book, if you like, who came on the telly with, with his long kind of slightly hippie, hippie hair with a little bit of a knowing glint in his eye who occasionally would have a section on his programme where he'd have a pop band on. And then famously was the first person to put the pistols on. Also, I should mention the producer, Martin Hanna, mm. who went on, of course, famous, make those amazing Joy Division records. The, these are people all really who've been through the early 70s and the frustrations of not really a lot actually catching fire. And then you mentioned the, the pistols gig which was in June or July of 76. That really, it's impossible to exaggerate the significance of that. It really did change everything. And in a way, the importance of it took hold in Manchester more than it even did in London, the importance of the pistols. Because in Manchester, the social and political message of the pistols People took it to heart. One of the things that happens in Manchester because of the Industrial Revolution, which became known as Cottonopolis. So what you've got there is these people are really living it up. But you've got then the workers. And out of this inequality came this real socialist spirit that never really left the city. So when the punk thing happens, the free trade hall where that happened was set up on the site of the Peterloo massacre as a memorial, if you like, to what became the, well, to the people who died, I think there was 83 people or something died, hundreds massacred. On, on government order, putting down a protest, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a huge protest by poor people. The cavalry came in and massacred all these people. And on the site of that gets built the Free Trade Hall, which is where hmm. 
Bob Dylan was called Judas and where the pistols played that gig that changed everybody's life. I mean, if you're into psychogeography, you could have a field day with that. Yeah, that's deep sort of countercultural psycho- psychogeography, isn't it? You are suggesting that like the pistols playing there, apart from it being maybe an incendiary gig, you know, and they were sort of absolutely letting rip, but also Manchester was one of the best places for it to land because of the conditions that were there at the moment. And that's why it ignited so many things in the city, right? The bands and the people. I mean, I think is it only 70 people were there, although lots of people have claimed to be there since, probably because they were so impacted by it, right? Uh, in my case, I was too young to go, but my friend Billy Duffy then went on to be in the cult. I saw him the next day. Billy would have been 16 then, I think, and he was a different person. Right. My other two mates who went were in shock. I mostly remember talking about the pistols. They're really small. <laughs> They're tiny. Because when people went to see bands at that time, and myself included, I went to see every band that came to the city because I was able to sneak in. Bands that were on before the Pistols, they were men. And they had long hair and they had moustaches, usually, and expensive clothes, and with names like Barclay James Harvest <laughs> and Uriah Heat. But if you look back at the Pistols and also Buzzcocks, uh, before the punk uniform happened, they wore the same clothes that you only saw on Rent Boys they always looked like they were freezing. They didn't wear socks. That was, it was so shocking because over time, the narrative of the punk is the big words are there's anger and there's Mohicans and there's lots of chains going on and, you know, bondage trousers and all that. Well, a lot of the kids around me from real the real inner city areas called Collyhurst and Cheatham Hill and Widdenshaw, where I was from, Everyone was tiny. No one wore jackets. They didn't have Mohicans and they they weren't dressed for battle. They just had these V-neck jumpers on with no shirts and plastic sandals. And again, there's a little bit of a nod back to Bowie. It was a sort of glam rock kind of look and it was really stripped down. And it was, it was very shocking to see people wearing plastic sandals in winter and these super tight little trousers. And, and then you had Paul Morley, It was very, very important to it because you had a a young, very talented, very switched on, would-be journalist who suddenly was had lots of stuff to write right he was a little chronicler commentator wasn't he so that and you need that as well don't you to actually so that it it's a break that sort of hegemony of the music press and stuff writing about southern bands yeah or morley comparing joy division to um to roxy music and and the velvet underground and 50 years on almost, he was right. So it wasn't just musicians who wanted to pick up a guitar and play three chords that were liberated and inspired by that Free Trade Hall gig. There was thinkers, people who wanted to put bands on, as I say, people like Pete Saville, who did all the factory artwork. Then you've got the formation of factory records then. Johnny, I wanted to go back into your story. It's quite a funny incident. You were saying about how... You used to go to a lot of shows, you and your friends, basically by going around the back at the Free Trade Hall or the Apollo and sort of getting in through the fire doors effectively, right? You decide to go and see Fleetwood Mac, right? Definitely not punk, definitely from that previous generation or big rock stars, right? And I'm just going to read you this. So you go in the back of the Apollo, you're on your own. As I was standing by the side doors, a huge Bentley pulled up beside me and a very tall man stepped out. Mick Fleetwood, I'm assuming, with two beautiful blonde women, one on each arm and a big glass of red wine in his hand. They walked up to me and the man raised his glass of wine and then smiled and made a gesture as if to say, yeah, son, this really is as good as it looks, before the three of them walked through the door. (laughs) 
and I stood in awe, stunned by the beauty of the young women. I thought to myself, I'm definitely going to do that for a living. <laughs> Was that a road sign? Because, I mean, you've, got, you've done the guitar, you've got the books, you've got all that stuff going around you, and you've just seen the rock star. Yeah. Which is an iconic image, isn't it? This must have been the contemporary version of a Greek god or something, right? Yeah. You know, what's, what's great about that, the postscript to that is many years later, I bumped into Mick Fleetwood. I've met him a couple of times and I, I took great delight in telling him that story. He loved it. And uh, he said to me, uh, he said, you've got one thing wrong, dear boy. You've got one thing wrong. It, it wasn't red wine. It was claret. Uh, I thought, great. The thing about that was, as I say, I, me and my mates would go and see any band. Uh, so I saw more bands that I didn't like than bands I did like until New Wave and Punk happened. Uh, and then I, you know, I saw loads of great bands. But mm. a much, much bigger uh, sounding the road for me was when I think a year later, Patti Smith came to the Apollo. And another great moment in the book, actually, I'm just going to read it to you because you were only 14, right? I mean, when I was 14, I went to see Patti Smith at the Apollo. I was so looking forward to it. I actually bought a ticket in advance. Uh, her album Horses has been a huge influence on everyone and should even have the chart hit with Because of the Night. I was a big fan of the album Radio Ethiopia. And through Patti Smith, I found about CBGBs and Talking Heads and television. I went on my own to the Patti Smith show, but when I got there, I saw Billy Duffy with a couple of guys in the bar. I went over and he introduced me to Howard Bates from Slaughter and the Dogs, Phil Fletcher, who I recognised, and a guy called Stephen Morrissey. I was stood right at the front when Patti Smith came on with the band, and it was like witnessing an incantation. I thought she was on another plane. The show was electricity, rock and roll and ritual and the stage seemed like a different dimension, one I knew I had to live in myself. The next day, the world felt different. That was a very big sign, wasn't it? Yeah, and, you know, to get back to what we were talking about earlier, I was aware it was one of those Colin Wilson moments, mm. and mm. I remember looking up, stood right at the very, very front with this feeling almost like all your consciousness, is as wide as it can be, is this window frame, and... Pike Smith and her band are in it, you know, or through it, through it. That was what the stage was like to me from the minute they hit the stage. As I say, it was like an incantation and ritual. Mm. And she, her, her presence and her performance was gave off that shamanic, you know, uh, aspect. And I was really sucked into that. The next day, I had a paper round. That's how young I was. And I was on my paper round just being aware of the sky and going, my life is now different. Uh, without wishing to kind of overdo it, it is it is a sort of an esoteric, a kind of mystical experience then, isn't it? You know, shows like that. I mean, she was switched on herself in a kind of countercultural way, wasn't she, with Rambo, with Blake. She was channeling some deep stuff, and along with great yeah. tunes and attitude as well. That was quite a potent mix. In terms of the esoteric aspect, that feeling, I remembered similarly when when my mother used to stand me in front of the radio and she'd go off and do her chores, knowing that I would just wouldn't have moved. I used to stare into the radio in the same way. It, like it was essentially like it was a portal. And when I so when I'm writing tracks now, I think that's really useful. You know, I try and hmm. imagine the radio in, in, in the same way. So I, I, have, I was no stranger to moments that might be esoteric or mystical. I'm fine. I, I don't want to seek in it, but it is there. To get back to Patti Smith, that's where I found out about about Rambo and the, the symbolist poets and um, Burroughs. The things that influence you, you get into what influences them and they, they become your educators. Yeah, that's it. It's one of the things I was 
proud of with, with the Smiths when we formed was that in our way, we were we were doing able to do that. You know, we were turning people on, in yeah. my case, turning people on to the girl groups and Shangri-Las and or even Bert Janch or whoever my, Phil Spectre, whoever my influences were. And of course, Morrissey with, with Oscar Wilde, particularly and some of his influences, you know, becomes part of the band's not only your aesthetic but your worldview really and a, and a lifestyle you know you were bunking off school because you wanted to do music or and hang out and experience things right so formal education you weren't that interested in right and but your sort of you might call it your informal your countercultural education was coming through the music not only the stuff that you just love because it was great music but also because of these little glimpses into other worlds via artists like bowie and patty smith opening these windows into worlds which you wouldn't otherwise necessarily have come across yeah well actually officially left school at 15 i handed in my resignation and i didn't get much resistance from it to be fair from the school yeah i i had but i had more important things to do mm. that i felt it was at the time i discovered the music press in a big way so i could go to the central library and, and read that and i discovered because of the dolls i had to know who oscar wilde was and because of patty smith i had to know who rambo was bowie jean Genet. but i got really into Aldous Huxley for the first time in Central Library there. And Aldous Huxley's remained really, you know, I guess, my hero, really, all that time. I wanted to learn, you know. And yeah, so pop culture, as you said, was a real enabler. And I wanted to move on to another, what I seemed like a possibly a, a sort of signal moment, a road sign for you. And it's, it's got both elements of humour and romance in it which is that you get a job because you need to get a job um, and you're filling shelves at the co-op, but it doesn't work out and uh, you get sacked. And they have this ritual when you got sacked from the co-op in those days. <laughs> Humiliation as you leave. I thought that must have toughened you up for the future <laughs> future confrontations and possible rejections. <laughs> and then the, uh, then the evening turns into something rather wonderful. I had a, a job on Thursday, Friday night, stacking shelves in this this co-op uh which i hated i hated it because there was a woman there called madge she hated me uh and and my my punky clothes and um it was snowing and there was a bus strike so i had to walk it all the way to, to this job i hated on a friday night and this bunch of girls on the way off shouted to me well you go to this party later and not wanting to appear not in the know I said, oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I might. I had no idea what you're talking about. Whilst I was walking, starting to go dark, I was singing the Only Ones album. I was obsessed with the Only Ones, you know, Peter Perrett. He, Peter Perrett was like my Sid Barrett in, in many ways. And I remember the sodium light, the way it hit the snow as I was trudging off. When I look back on it now, there was a vibe that night. There was definitely mm. a vibe. Everything was sort of pregnant. Because I'd had to walk it and I, I, I was like 15 minutes late. Most of the staff in there were much older than me. They were adults and they were like, Madge is steaming for you. You're going to get it. Bye-bye. So I went in there and she sacked me and there was a bit of a confrontation. Uh, but as you say, um, the ritual, you weren't allowed to go out the front door. Off you go out through the loading bay. So it being a giant co-op, there is a, an absolute arsenal of eggs. So on pallets, like four feet high, Work stops for 15 minutes while you get this little guy. There, there was, must have been 14, 15 of these people. Just, I'm stood in this, this loading bay and they're just pelting me and pelting me and pelting me with eggs. And uh, until, you know, there was some sort of mercy call and the offer trudged with no, you know, not able to get on a bus to walk the maybe seven miles back home on this Friday night. 
as a human omelette walking in the snow. I was so uncomfortable and it was so cold uh, and humiliating during that seven mile walk back. But I was so uncomfortable, I had to nip into my mate's house to, to have a shower and borrow his And he talked me into going to this party. It's going to be fun. There's going to be a lot, lot of cute girls there and all that. So I, me and my pals then went into this little house party and we walked in there, didn't know anyone in there. And uh, within five minutes, 10 minutes, I saw this this vision, most beautiful girl I've ever seen. The rest is history. I completely, absolutely besotted with her from that moment. And I turned to my mate, who was the drummer in my band, Bobby Durkin. I said, to, I'm going to marry that girl. I've, she's she's the one. And you said, it's amazing how the course of your life can change within a few seconds. One moment things are as normal, then a phone call, a meeting, destiny or fate, and everything's different from now on. That's what we're kind of talking about in a way, isn't it? These kind of signal moments. And, you know... Uh, Oh, you said like rest is history, and I th- you talk later. You know when you're obviously you're together, but you say the early days of finding each other were magic for me and Angie. One day we snuck off and sat on a wall in the estate with the spring sky behind us, and I laid out the plan for our future. We'll get away and get out. I'll put together a band and make records. We'll go to London, then go around the world. I'm a guitar player. That's what we're doing. She didn't doubt me, and that was that. You had a very strong presentment, I suppose, was the best way to describe it about an intention about what was going to happen next still together you've got two kids and that's been a big part of your life next thing is really important i think in terms of counterculture for both of you is the whole thing about clothes you know whilst you're getting it together whilst you're preparing for that next stage in your kind of musical calling you know that's gonna uh, through the bands that predate the smiths uh you start working in clothes shops right and that whole part of it becomes really important and you talk about Lloyd Johnson I'm hoping to interview Lloyd Johnson about his life oh brilliant yeah. you know we've already talked about it in terms of what happened when you were when you were younger but um clothes and style and streetwear was a really important part of it for you guys right a hundred percent yeah I mean as it had gone back to like when we first started talking it had gone back to that incident in 1969 1970 with the and my sister, and then all the way through it, all the way through the youth clubs. To this day, really, I, I genuinely hope it isn't about vanity. It's just, it's to do with design, really, and aesthetic. That period when Angie and I first get together, there was a sort of archetype of what a guitarist in waiting would do. My friend Billy Duffy, who'd moved from Manchester to London, he was working in Johnson. But part of that archetype as billy knows was working in a clothes shop i mean you know the pistol story is the same there are obvious reasons for that one you you stand around chatting about music and clothes whilst listening to compilation tapes i thought well yeah i can definitely do that but also with my passion for for clothes and angie's angie's interest in clothes as well it's one of the things we had in common well you know i needed money Uh, (laughs) you know i had a conversation with john lyden he's also the oldest of three irish kids he has a, a similar feeling about that so not about the oldest kid and be in a working class family, you know, you got you weren't going to be signing on the dole. The first job I got was in a kind of streetwear sort of shop. It was had that kind of Perry Boy thing. It wasn't rock and roll. The clientele were more kind of disco-y and um, footballery. Uh, still as sharp and still as obsessive, but didn't really suit me. I wasn't. They weren't really letting me have an influence. I kind of got asked. Are invited to go and work in, I guess it was a kind of proto-goth sort of shop called Aladdin's Cave. That was really quite interesting because from for a start, the music was was craftwork 
a big record for me was magazine and the correct use of soap. The Cramps, and this is a fascinating time in itself, post-punk, pre-indie. There's magazines like The Face starts there's changing the technology so a lot of bands are sounding kind of different you've got bands like simple minds coming out still under the radar they're still flying the flag for alternative thinking a big part of that is german ideas again bowie reigns supreme it's all about bowie's trilogy of albums therefore Kraftwerk are starting to be very influential so you hear that in the sound of bands and then that goes into the new romantic period and but angie and i had a connection to the King's Road, really probably by, most strongly because, Billy, because of Billy Duffy, and a real love of Johnson's clothes. Now, our boss was blacklisted because he used to copy King's Road clothes. He would take them and copy them. And we didn't like him very much. And he made a big mistake, trusting me to go undercover, <laughs> go into these shops because I was I was clued up and I had... I was likable, I guess. I had a good reputation, I suppose, to go and buy stuff and then come back with these bin bags full of clothes. Which he would then sort of make knockoffs of. That was his intention. But I hated him and I really loved Lloyd Johnson. Uh, so we, Angie and I, as a ritual every couple of weeks, 5.30am, have some chemical replenishment, get to Piccadilly train station with this blank check from our ne'er-do-well boss, get down to London, walk up Sloan Street like we were walking towards Mecca. <laughs> Me looking like a mini Johnny Thunders and her looking like a 16-year-old Susie Sue. Nip into Robot and Boy, which was seditionaries, and we'd look at what was going on there and then we'd head into Johnson's. And when we'd go there, Lloyd would sometimes be in there and he'd say, uh, oh, here they are, the two little lovebirds. Look at them, <laughs> how are you doing? From the very first time we went in there, I just didn't have it in me to uh, to con him. I just no way you're going to kind of rip off all his clothes, right? I went, Lloyd. Listen, we've been sent on this <laughs> reconnaissance mission. What do we do? And he was like, Oh, don't worry about it. So we used to fill these bags full of stuff that Johnsons couldn't sell, <laughs> and then we'd have a bag of really great stuff that Lloyd would sell as cheap. Me and Angie then get the train back that night, and our boss would be waiting for us, and we. We had this bin bag and we would throw the bin bag behind this bush so it's all the stuff we loved <laughs> that Lloyd would give us really cheap. And then we'd pull in out these like dreadful clothes and the boss was going, do you think people will like that? Oh, that's really great. Yeah, I really love that taffeta suit. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> you two be rocking it then because you'd be wearing like fresh off the rail uh, Lloyd Johnson stuff, right? I, actually, I, I don't even think the Clash had the, the clothes that I was wearing because Lloyd was just giving me all this stuff. A few of my mates would save up and go, well, when you go to Johnson's, will you get me one of these jackets? Will you get me a pair of these boots? And i just get them for costs. That's how I made my living, really. Uh, so you can't underestimate, can you, the sort of importance of shops like that in terms of youth culture? You know, like um, think about Don Letts in Kensington Market and running a store but also playing music at the same time. So it becomes like a cultural crossroads. And then the whole other massive thing going on, which you talk about, is the politics at the time. As 1979 went on, you said, Britain began to feel the effect of the new Conservative government led by Margaret Thatcher. In the short time that she'd been in power, there was already a change in the community I grew up in as families suffered unemployment and a sense of real apprehension took hold. She had a colossal ego and her philosophy relied on the very worst aspects of human nature. She knew that if you put people under enough hardship, they would turn away from each other in order to protect their own interests. I was quite struck by that, sort of deliberately putting people under that kind of pressure 
And Manchester, of course, much more so than the capital. Yeah. There's no such thing as society, she famously said, right? That's right. It put politics right on the front line, yeah. didn't it, for a lot of people. generation that I come out of, I think, had no choice but to be political. And then the bands then that were formed by those people, I guess Depeche Mode, The Cure, New Order, Echo and the Bunny, many more bands, we didn't even really need to discuss our political allegiances because it was completely explicit and implicit hmm. in being in a band. You had a common enemy. In my case, because I grew up on a housing estate, when there was a general election, you just knew that everybody was going to vote Labour. When, when Thatcher came in, I just started to have a, a, a realisation that because the squeeze was going on to everybody and some of my friends' older brothers and sisters were suddenly losing their job at the motoring plant at the engineering plant big manufacturers and industry was still rife all over the country but you started to notice this drop off in employment then when a couple of your mates dads had, a, right. had lost their job that they'd had for 30 or 40 years i had a kind of a human sense in a way there was a fear in my community and it was pretty obvious that certain households were going to try and protect themselves whereas before it was a given that you just looked after all. You did the best for the common interest. As you say, there was this kind of movement, the Red Wedge bands of your generation, you know, overtly started to kind of be political, not necessarily with the song song content. Some of them were, some of them weren't. Billy Bragg was, but not everybody was. But there's that Woody Guthrie thing, isn't there, about, you know, he put that sticker on his uh, guitar saying, this machine kills fascists. There was that sort of idea of the guitar as a sort of countercultural protest device as well, wasn't there? And through the sort of energy of music that you could kind of fight those oppressive forces. Absolutely right. When the Smiths started touring in earnest, I knew who our audience were. I can tell you that we all had those very same concerns. Everybody knew we were all on the same page against the government. There was no way around it. It's more difficult, I think, now to be, a, say, a political songwriter. I mean, you know, just in terms of lyrics and stuff, it's maybe not the best media, but, but I thought we could have a listen to something that you did in 2017. In 2017, Johnny teamed up with the award-winning actor Maxine Peake to create a short film, The Priest, about homelessness and drugs on the streets, which set Maxine's spoken word performances against his soundscape. The words were based upon characters that Joe Gallagher met on the streets in Edinburgh after becoming homeless. I'm on my way to the Salvation Army, see if I can get something to eat. I'm skin and I don't know so. On the street where the Sally Army is, I'm approached by two guys. Do you want to buy any gay? I'm asked. What sort of gay? Skag, smack man. Nah, no thanks, it's not my thing. What about crack then? Nah, it's not my thing either. I reply. Spice? <sighs> no. What about a drink then, eh? Nah, I reply. I'm not drinking at the minute. Got stuff to sort. What? Are you a fucking vicar? Laughing, they make their way onwards. Leaving me to scrounge a bit of breakfast at the Sally Army. The following day, I'm on my way to another place that provides food for homeless people. I come across the same two guys. They see me, and one says to the other, Watch out! It's the priest. They stand in a prayer stance. I look round. 
There is no priest. It's interesting you say that um, music might not be the best medium for it because it is tricky. However, one of the gifts being a songwriter gives you is you can put messages into pop songs. I had Billy Bragg on. What he said was that during the Red Wedge time, or the time we were talking about, is that really there is only music as a kind of vehicle for young people to kind of have a common voice. Whereas now there are many other ways to do that through, say, social media, you know. So um, it's not necessarily that you can't do it through songs and music anymore, but it's that there are other ways. But Johnny, going back to the time just before the Smiths, all this stuff's going on. You're working in clothes shops, you've got Angie, you're reading books, but of course your craft is coming on, you're in bands. There was one other moment which, I don't know if it is a signpost on the road, but it's when you talk about seeing the film about the songwriters, Libra and Stoller, right? And yeah. they seem to me to be able to bracket uh, the counterculture in some way because this is a songwriting duo that wrote Hound Dog and Jailhouse Rock, right? <laughs> Guys with guitars. They also wrote Is That All There Is in 1969, you know, for me, the, one of the greatest existential songs ever written, right? Yeah. For you, whether that kind of brackets your music you know because at one end you've got that raw rock and roll thing and then the other end you've got the more existential thought-provoking stuff like we heard with Maxine then right. yeah that's uh, that's uh, interesting the Lieben Stoller that it was a life-changing moment rock and roll plus is that all there is well it covers really quite a lot of, uh, <laughs> it certainly does yeah I think what you what you described there is breadth of what popular culture can be and certainly was in my formative years. What you take from a song, a band, an artist, a photograph, an album cover, an exhibition can really inspire you for the rest of your life. And you can keep that flame burning and it, it can define you and it can inspire you and it can inform you. And in my case, I can't imagine a time when I'm not drawing from, from that. Hail, hail rock and roll, I guess. Hail, hail rock and roll. Johnny, we are going to have to end. I mean, we just got you to the door of uh, the Smiths. And often in rock and roll and pop, uh, musicians are expected to, to get it right and then keep doing it rather than keep moving. And you've kept moving, done a lot yeah. of stuff. You're not overground, you're not underground, as Mark Smith said about the fall. You've worked with the biggest, uh, Hans Zimmer, Billie Eilish on No Time to Die, you know, which got an academy award had done the underground stuff but the thing about being not underground and not overground i've always felt like gate crashing the mainstream <laughs> well i think maybe some people listening to this might recognize this if you're someone who at about the age of 13 14 for whatever reason maybe it's an older a sibling or a teacher or something you've read plants that seed <laughs> of suspicion with the mainstream it never really leaves you I mean, so i want it all really you can sort of take the lessons of the post-punk generation and make interesting music that sometimes crosses over and i'll take that that's fine by me we're at the end and we sort of pulled out a few of the signposts on the road do you have the sense that there's going to be more experiences that are going to point towards some destination that you're not quite sure what it is the moment you stop being open to that it, it will stop happening it's a balance really i think Stephen, between keeping one foot on the ground but also being open to these moments uh i'd hate to have got this far in my life as a person and then decided that i was going to shut myself off to what 
what Colin Wilson calls peak experience. Your album Fever Dreams Part 1 to 4 is out and you're now off on the road with Blondie and um, if you sort of went back through time uh, Johnny to you know after you've been pelted with eggs and trudged through the snow and then went to the party and you, just before you met Angie and there you were sitting in that room in a party in somewhere in parallel lines playing. What do you think you would have thought then if you'd known what was going to happen? The realistic side of me just goes, you can't really get your head around that. And this, I don't mean, mean this to be immodest in any way. There was a thing in me that I knew there was more to life than what my senses was telling me. There was something in the air. Something in the air. Johnny, we got to the end, sadly. But thank you so much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Cultures. Share some of your countercultural stories and signs along the road. No, you're more than welcome. I love the podcast. It's great. I've really been entertained and, and informed by it. So I'm really glad you're doing it. Oh, thanks so much. See you down the road, we hope. Thanks, Stephen. Good to see you, man. Well, listeners, I'm sure you will agree that was a treat. And we didn't even get onto the birth of Manchester, the Hacienda, and all the Manchester countercultural times that came afterwards. Maybe we'll try and invite Johnny back for part two sometime. And thanks to Dave Palmer for setting that up and Alice for piloting us. Thank you for spending your time with us at the Bureau of Lost Culture. If you enjoyed this or any other of the journeys we've set out upon, leave us a review or let us know what you would like to hear. Go to bureauoflostculture.com. Perhaps you've had glimpses into your own destiny, your own signposts along the road. I certainly have, and I've followed some of them, but chickened out of others, always to my regret. Whilst reading Johnny's book, I did remember something from when I was small. With my mother downstairs, I used to play with an old portable record player somewhere upstairs in our house. There was a bunch of old spoken word records with fairy tales or folk tales on them. And I used to play them whilst pretending that I was telling the stories, in between making noises on my sister's classical guitar. And here I am. See you next time. We're going to play out with Ghoster, a track from Johnny's album, Fever Dreams Parts 1 to 4.
Thank you.